lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Well, today's show is all about the brand new book by Josh Volk, and it's called Compact Farms. And this book is a fun book to read because it features 15 compact farms. These are farms that are operated on less than five acres, and in most cases, I would say much less than five acres. And the conversation today is really, really neat. Josh takes us through all 15 farms, every single one of them, and we talk about some of the standout features of each one of these operations and then the wonderful people who farm on those operations. And all of that's coming up after the Garden News Roundup today. And the collection of posts that made it in the Garden News Roundup this week are also really fun. Well, if you're not yet a member of the Still Growing Podcast listener community on Facebook, I would love for you to do that for free, to sign up for free. Just head over to Facebook, and the next time you're there, get in the search bar and type in Still Growing Podcast Group, and then our group will pop right up. Make sure you're looking at the group, that you're not looking at the page for the show. The group is something that you'll have to click to request to join. And then once you click to join, you're admitted into the group. And then you can get all of the wonderful posts that make it in the Garden News Roundup and get all of the information regarding the show. You know, once you're a member of the group, there are a lot of great benefits, including quality content. So all of the posts from the Garden News Roundup are included in the Facebook group. So you don't have to take notes while we're going through the Garden News Roundup. And then there are really great listener posts. So Peter Langham from Atlanta just shared his gorgeous garden because spring has started in Atlanta. That was very inspiring to those of us dealing with potentially big amounts of snow. In Minnesota, they were saying we were going to get over 20 inches of snow in the Twin Cities. So things were getting canceled left and right. And here in lovely Maple Grove, the high school basketball game against our number one rival, Osseo, was canceled in anticipation of this huge, huge snow storm that never materialized. So there were a lot of things that got canceled and postponed because we really thought, thanks to all of the prediction models, that this massive amount of snow was coming our way. In fact, the day the snow was predicted to fall, I was driving to the high school and picking up my daughter. She had an orthodontist appointment. And then my two younger ones had their yearly checkup at the doctor's office. So I was out and about that day. And every time I was getting on the road or in lovely Maple Grove, I would end up behind one of the big de-icing liquid trucks, the trucks that lay down this liquid de-icer. It almost looks like they're getting ready to clean the streets, but they were out in force in anticipation of the snowstorm that wasn't. So it was kind of just a surreal thing because that very rarely happens. And you know, it was kind of a blessing because we have experienced unbelievably warm temperatures this February. So warm, in fact, that most people are running around in shorts. I can't say that I wasn't just a little relieved that we didn't get that snowfall. 
And because we didn't get that snowfall, I didn't make chili. I didn't make my dad's chili that night. Instead, we did pizza. So the weather plays a big role, not only in our outside activities, but then what we're eating for supper. I'm sure the same thing happens in your household as well. In any case, it was wonderful to see Peter Langham's images of his spring garden. In fact, he was showing harvest time as well because he's harvesting carrots, beets, and choy right now, and he's starting to plant potatoes. So he had this great image of this trench that he had dug along, looks like the side of his house where he was planting potatoes. It was just a wonderful image. And very inspiring for those of us who have springtime probably at least a couple of months away. So until then, we're going to be vicariously gardening through a lot of the people in the listener community. Shannon Palma joined the listener community a few weeks ago as well. And she had listened to an episode where I had referenced Cassandra Quave's work on plants and antibiotic resistance. And Shannon wrote that Cassandra's on faculty at her institution. And Shannon went on to share Cassandra Quave's latest work on the Brazilian pepper tree, which apparently has the power to knock out antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And then later in the week, she shared images of her little seedlings poking through the soil, and she named one of them Bob. So we're wishing Bob well, and we're rooting for her seedlings to do well outside. So go, Bob. And then finally, listener Jennifer Cano shared her fabulous trick for keeping rabbits away from young seedlings. She wrote, I'm in a suburban neighborhood with a corner lot, and I do a lot of native planting and planting for pollinators. Rabbits are a regular issue for me. For new and smaller plants that wouldn't be able to recover from a rabbit, I look for those mesh trash cans at dollar stores, and then she tips them upside down and secures them over plants like this. And then she shows this image of this tiny seedling in this fantastic mesh trash can that's been anchored to the ground around the plant. I thought it was ingenious. I told her how clever, and she gave me permission to share it with you today. So in the Facebook group, you can find great listener tips and inspiration like the ones that I just shared with you. You can also interact with other guests of the show. So when guests are on the show, they're always invited to be in the Facebook group to interact with listeners of the show. And then the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any giveaways for my guests and sponsors. And before I forget, I want to make sure that I welcome new members who joined the Still Growing Podcast group this week, and they are Carrie Maselli from Peoria, Illinois. Welcome, Carrie. Kate Birch, Alex Long, Alora Celentano, Adam Naranjo, Dean Cherry, Jennifer Weaver, Elizabeth Blakely, Mary Sproles Martin, Don Beeman, Deb Young, Carolyn Clamp. Melissa Lockard, and Matt Walsh. In fact, Matt gave me a shout out. He said, thank you for the ad all the way from New Zealand. Matt wrote that he was just starting to listen to the podcast because they're moving into a new house and a new subdivision with no topsoil and very hard clay. He said he loved the episode featuring Tara Nolan and her book, The Raised Bed Revolution. That was back in episode 531. And the Decoding Gardening Advice book featuring Jeff Gilman and Malia Maynard. That was in episode 505. 
And then I suggested to Matt that since he has such terrible soil conditions that he consider going back to listen to my episodes with Joel Karsten all about straw bale gardening. There's a three-part episode back in episodes 515, 516, and 517 that are all about straw bale gardening. In fact, episode 516 is really the how-to And then 517 is more special circumstances and more advanced questions related to straw bale gardening. And then, of course, Joel was just on the show again in episode 556, telling us all about his trip to Cambodia and giving us a little update on straw bale gardening and why it works in conditions exactly like the ones Matt is experiencing. Poor soil, poor drainage, hard clay. So there's no doubt that straw bale gardening or raised beds or container gardening would be optimal in that situation. Anyway, welcome you guys to the group. And again, if you'd like to join the group, just head on over to Facebook and type in Still Growing Podcast Group and then request to join and I'll let you into the group and I'd love to see you there. Now, before I start the Garden News Roundup, I want to make sure I recognize my listener advisory board members who started helping me this week by giving me feedback and suggestions on a number of things that I'm working on for the show. And of course, this group of ladies is from the Still Growing Podcast group. That's the place I go for everything. And all of these gals volunteered to help me out for a four-month term between February and May. So they get to see the the behind-the-scenes working of the show, and they get to influence the direction of the show. So helping me this quarter are Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Amy Fairbanks-Von Aachen, Patricia Chandler-Newport, Debbie Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery of American Beauty Native Plants. So thank you so much, ladies, for helping out with the Listener Advisory Board. Your input is ensuring that I stay very closely aligned to what listeners of the show are needing help with. So thank you for that. All right, let's go to the Garden News Roundup. In the guest update segment, Lori Neverman from Common Sense Homesteading back in episode 541 shared a very helpful post on how to grow pole beans for easy picking and preserving. And she's got this nice little section called Why I Like Pole Beans Better Than Bush Beans. So if you're planning to grow beans in this year's vegetable garden, check that post out. And again, you can find it in the Still Growing Podcast group. In the sustainability section, the Washington Post shared a wonderful article called Vegetables for Patio Gardens Are More Abundant Than Ever. This was written by Barbara Damrosch. And it immediately caught my attention because it featured someone holding a lovely basket filled with Little Prince eggplants from Renee's garden. And then Barbara goes on to list some of her favorite varieties that are considered novelties, such as Naked Bear Pumpkin, Deep Purple Cauliflower, and Magenta Melon. I'm a huge fan of patio gardens and the role they play in sustainability for folks who are very space-challenged. This is a really wonderful article, and just reading about those novelty varieties makes it worth checking out. In the Continuing Ed segment, there was a video that was making its way through some of the gardening groups on Facebook, and it was Shirley Bobshaw's Garden World Report Show featuring how to make orchids rebloom in a step-by-step guide. Shirley did a great job in this video, 
And if you grow orchids and are tired of throwing them away the minute they're done blooming, this is the perfect video for you because Shirley is going to walk you through step-by-step what you need to do to get them to rebloom. Lots of great information in this video. And then ExtraCrispy.com shared a fun post on the difference between apple juice and apple cider. And essentially, the difference boils down to how it's made. Apple cider is freshly pressed, so it's not from concentrate juice, where apple juice, on the other hand, may be from concentrate and has usually been filtered, pasteurized, and vacuum sealed to give it a longer-lasting, stable shelf life. So there you have it. In the how-to DIY segment, ModernFarmer.com shared a really cute post on how to build a native bee hotel. This was by Brian Barth, and the post was released on Valentine's Day, and it's a sweetheart of a post. It gives lots of specific details and instructions on how to build a native bee hotel. So if you've been looking for more information or ideas around how to do this, this post is a go-to post for this. And by the way, this would be a great activity to do with the kids. The other how-to article I ran across is from Harmony Hills Home and Garden. And back in January, the author of this blog talked about how to start a garden journal. And I thought she did a lovely job of including a number of things that you may want to include in your garden journal. This is the perfect time of year to read a how-to post like this. And it's the right time to begin recording thoughts and observations about your 2017 garden. In the plant spotlight this week, there were a number of posts that I shared. There was a fun post that talked about why buttercups have glossy petals. In fact, the special reflective quality of the petals is unique to the buttercup. In fact, researchers have discovered that a very flat pigment-filled upper epidermis on the buttercup petals acts as a thin film reflector yielding that gloss. And additionally, it serves as a filter for the sunlight, and that's what yields the matte yellow color. So that was a very interesting post. There was a very memorable post in The Guardian this past week, and it was all about rhododendrons. The author wrote, forget the flowers, check out the leaves. This is a great post showing the non-flower aspect of rhododendrons, and it's by Robbie Blackhall-Miles. Great post. Another post came from Gardenista. It was written by Marion Mako, and this post was so pretty, I almost put it in the inspiration segment, but I didn't. It's featuring the snowdrops that are in season at Cotswold Farm. So if you just like to take a look at these beautiful images of the wonderful snowdrops and then just like pass out and take a nap, this is the article that'll do that for you. And Marion did a great job of kind of covering the backstory to snowdrops. The Latin word for them is galanthus, and it's from the Greek word meaning milk flower, which of course refers to the beautiful white flowers with the little shivering white bells that make up galanthus. And these galanthus are just carpeting the woodland slopes around Cotswold Farm. It's almost too much to look at. It's just so beautiful. And then I share a post 
on my new little friend that I brought home, and it's a lemon button fern. And what I did with this fern is I bought a wonderful soup tureen at Goodwill, and it's gorgeous. It's got a plate and then this urn, and it had a lid and a ladle. And I was going to display it on top of one of the cabinets in my kitchen, and then I decided it would make a wonderful home for my lemon button fern. And it really sets it off. So I shared pictures of that in the Facebook group this week as well. But I love the lemon button fern because it doesn't shed the way the Boston fern does. It's a little more compact. It's a little more dense. And it's smaller. That's why they call it a button fern. And it makes me thoroughly happy when I come into my kitchen and I see it in that soup tureen. Love it. Well, in the news this week, there are a number of fun things to tell you about. The first is run out and get your March edition of Better Homes and Gardens because it is chock full of gardening articles and tips this month. In fact, the cover is loaded with parrot tulips, just absolutely gorgeous. And that says, get growing, 119 reasons to get in your garden. So this is without a doubt a gardener's edition. In fact, if you have a gardener friend in your life that needs just a little pick-me-up, go out and buy them this magazine. Pop it in their mailbox with a little note. Let them know you're thinking of them. It's colorful. It's cheery. It's a great little read for spring. Well, there was a fun post also shared in Country Living, and it shared the obituaries that people are writing for their dead house plants, and they are hilarious. So maybe that's something we can do in the Facebook group this week, right before we turn to Thoughts of Outdoors, is share some of the pictures of the house plants that didn't make it. In fact, as I'm sitting here in my office, I'm looking into this beautiful curio that I got earlier this year. I got it in a Pottery Barn warehouse sale, and I've turned it into a little bit of a greenhouse for my begonias. And let's just say that one of them isn't making it out of there alive. So I'm sorry, little buddy. We gave it a go, though. Well, also in the news this week were two wonderful articles about trees. One was in The Guardian, and it featured a Welsh oak that could be the first British winner of the European Tree of the Year Award. It's called the Bremen Oak. It's an ancient tree. It's a Welsh tree. And apparently it's gotten over 10,000 votes, which puts it behind an oak tree from Poland and a lime tree in the Czech Republic. In fact, there's a gentleman named Rob McBride. He's known as the tree hunter. And he said that this tree is the only tree that has bent a bypass, meaning a roadway that actually changed direction so that it could accommodate this tree. So it's the only tree that has moved a motorway. It is just a tremendous tree. It's a 500-year-old oak that's growing on a Welsh farm. And McBride says it's a symbol of hope because it shows how we can live with nature with just tiny adjustments to our thinking and planning. The owner of the tree, Mervyn Jones, says that it's had three death threats. First, they were going to chop it down. Then they were going to pick it up and replace it. And then they wanted the new road to go about 3.5 meters from the trunk, which, which would have cut through its roots and killed it. But he campaigned to save the tree and he won. And Heine Evans of the Woodland Trust said the support for the Bremen Oak in the European Tree of the Year contest has been the best of any UK tree in the history of the competition. 
It's a beautiful tree, and I was so thrilled to share it with the group this week. And then the Washington Post shared an article about how a gardener is working to preserve George Washington's last surviving trees. This was written by Adrian Higgins. There are only four trees that have survived from Washington's time on Mount Vernon. They are two tulip poplars and a hemlock. The fourth is a white mulberry. And Joel King is the Mount Vernon gardener who's on a mission to protect and propagate the trees. This article was interesting because it talks about how the cuttings of the different trees are faring. Some are doing better than others. It's a lovely article. And then finally, I shared an article that appeared in Forbes. It's from a week ago, and it's called How This Wet Wild Winter in California Wine Country Could Have Unexpected Benefits. So this was a very interesting article about how the vineyards are responding to the rain. And the article talks about how even some of the vineyards in the area that have been flooded should be okay as the year progresses. So time will tell. In the Dream Guest segment this week, I shared a post from Kylie's Herbarium from the website of the same name. And they really did a wonderful job with a post called A Song to Sow and a Charm to Reap, Sowing Seeds in Scottish Folklore. And there was this charming little saying at the end that they shared, and it says, one to wither, one to grow, one for the she and one for the crow. Just an adorable post about sowing seeds in Scottish folklore, which is what the entire website is devoted to. In Science This Week, there was a fascinating article that was shared in IB Times. It's by Leah Sarugu, and it's called, What is Catnip and Why Do Cats Love It? And I'm going to give you a little preview of the most fascinating part of the article. It says that scientists have found that the euphoric effect of catnip is produced by a special chemical made by the plant. It's known as nepetalactone. Nepetalactone is a terpenoid, a class of chemical also found in cloves, ginger, and cannabis. Experiments conducted by scientists in the 1940s have shown the chemical doesn't just have a psychedelic-like effect on cats. By giving that extract to lions in a zoo, they discovered that its distinctive smell aroused the large felines from a state of lethargy to one of excitement. But catnip plants don't produce the chemical to make cats high. The primary purpose of nepetalactone is to protect plants against pests, in particular, nefarious sap-sucking aphids, which suck their flesh out. So the way nepetalactone works is simple, yet surprising. The chemical is, in fact, an aphid pheromone. This sounds counterintuitive because people may wonder why plants would make a hormone that would essentially attract the pest that they're trying to defend against. However, it's an ingenious strategy because aphids typically don't reproduce in the summer when the plant is growing. So the creation of that pheromone does not end up attracting aphids to the plant. But what the plants do attract are aphid predators such as the lacewing fly or wasps. And these guys lay their eggs inside live aphids. So the aphids that end up being drawn to the plant end up being killed by their predators. I thought that was massively cool. Well, in shopping this week, I have two tips for you. 
The first is this wonderful book that I ran across called Posh Eggs. I had to get a copy. It's a beautiful cover. It's yellow. It's sunny. It's friendly. And it's all about eggs. And we eat a lot of eggs at our house. So the book Posh Eggs has over 70 recipes for wonderful eggy things. I bought the hardcover. It normally retails for about $20. I found it in the used section on Amazon for about $10. And it's fantastic. In fact, it's one of my favorites. And I'm keeping it right on the counter on my cookbook stand. That's how much I love the cover. Great ideas for working with eggs in this book. Well, the other item that I share in the shopping segment is from The Telegraph, and it shows this crazy post of something that Ikea's introduced, and it's called The Grow Room. It's a build-it-yourself spherical garden that's made from plywood, and the instructions were made available to download for free this month. So if you're interested in something that is completely freaky looking and will wow your friends, I think this will do the trick. So I will make links to the download, the free download from Ikea, and put it in the Facebook group this week. But at a minimum, you have to check out this article. And of course, I love the spherical design. That's the coolest part. Finally, an inspiration this week, there was a great article from treehugger.com. And it's titled, How a Half Acre Urban Garden Became a Hub for Many More. And what I was most interested in about this article is the wonderful film that it features from Happen Films. This features the rural farm of Kane and Fiona Hogan and how they've transformed their half-acre property into an organic farm. And it's a vital part of their business, which is called the Urban Gardener. They use the income from cash crops to fund an outreach effort to local residents providing landscape design and gardening services. And I included the film as part of the inspiration segment because Kane and Fiona are featured in this film. And they're so inspiring in terms of how they see this interchange of ideas all around growing food and the building of a resilient community. It's a great little film. It was a natural choice for the inspiration spot this week. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup. And of course, if you'd like to see these posts for yourself all in one place, head on over to the Facebook group. So the next time you're in Facebook, just go up to the search bar and type in Still Growing Podcast Group and then request to join. It's completely free. And you'll see all of the things that were shared in the Garden News Roundup today, in addition to other helpful things that I post in the group throughout the week. Well, you guys, by the time this show airs, it will be March 3rd, and Daylight Savings Time will be just nine days away. So we are getting ever closer to getting back into our gardens, and I think today's show with Josh Volk will be very motivational for you. Josh's new book titled Compact Farms was released early in February, and the subtitle is 15 Proven Plans for Market Farms on Five Acres or Less. Josh lives in Portland, Oregon. You can reach him on his website at slowhandfarm.com. He makes very cool carts for the farm and garden, and you can find out about those at farmhandcarts.com. And Josh was recently featured in an interview on the Huffington Post back in early February about small farming or big gardening, depending on your perspective. And the article starts out by saying, for a long time, the prevailing mantra of farming in America has been simple, get big or get out. 
And by the time the article winds its way through Josh's perspective on farming, especially small farms, it ends with this paragraph. Volk details how each farm grows and sells its products, even offering advice to aspiring farmers who are interested in taking up the trade themselves. And through the telling of their stories, Volk pushes back against the get big or get out narrative, making a strong case for how smaller farms can and do contribute to our nation and planet's health and livelihood. So I thought that Huffington Post piece did a great job of summarizing Josh's case for small farms. And I know you'll find tons of inspiration, information, and ideas during my conversation with Josh. We walk through every single one of the 15 compact farms featured in Josh's book. And it's a treat to hear about them from Josh's perspective. Hi there, Josh. I am so thrilled to get the chance to speak with you about your brand new book, Compact Farms. You know, compact farming, urban farming, and just growing edibles in general is a growing trend across the country. So your book is very timely. But before we start to review your book and specifically dive into the 15 farms you profiled, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, thanks for having me. It's a real joy to be here. Um, telling you about me uh, is a question that's really hard for me to answer because I do a lot of different things. And so, um, you know, the farming is one piece, and then I wrote this book, and that's another piece. And everything I do is kind of related to that compact farm thing, but I have my uh, my hand in a lot of different projects. So it's not as simple as just saying that uh, I'm a, a small vegetable farmer. I do farming. Um, I also work with uh, farmers as a consultant, um, and I've been doing that for about uh, eight or nine years now. I design tools for f- small farms and, you know, working on getting those actually uh, in small-scale production. Uh, I do teaching. I, I teach workshops around the country. And so there's a lot of different pieces that I've kind of gotten my hands into over the, the past few years. But the farming is, is the real core, the, the compact farming. And that's the thing that ties it all together. Wow. Now, what motivated you to write a book? Well, actually, I, um, you know, have always been interested in kind of what other people are doing and, you know, looking at other people's farms and that kind of thing. And actually, the the publisher, Story Press, came to me with the idea uh, for writing a book on, they had done a two other books. So they'd done uh, Compact Cabins and they had done one called Compact Houses. And those were both kind of layouts and, and floor plans for those types of things. And if you were going to build those structures, what you would consider. And so they had an idea that um, maybe one on Compact Farms would be a good idea. Um, and actually through uh, my friend Joey Bradbury, who's one of the farmers that's uh, profiled in the book, um, she had worked with them on another project, which I had also been a part of called the Greenhorns. And that was... Um, essays by uh, young farmers around the country, and somehow she slipped me in there, uh, even though I didn't quite, I was kind of right on the edge of uh, that young farmer definition that they were using. <laughs> um, so we had worked together on that project a while ago, and she was one of the three editors on that project. Um, and then originally, Story per, uh, Publishing went to her uh, with the idea, and she said, oh, I don't have enough time for this right now, um, but you should really talk to my friend Josh. Um, and the truth is that um, if I had gone to a publisher with an idea, this is really the idea that I would have gone to them with um, because this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm interested in is 
you know, going and finding out about, you know, what is everybody else doing and, and sharing that information with the larger farming community. Yeah, I was actually surprised there wasn't something similar to this on the market yet, given how hot it is. There have been in the past, although I think there's more and more farming books out all the time. And the and the book that I'm thinking of in particular, which um, Michael Abelman, who wrote the, the foreword for the book and um, who's become a good friend um, and mentor over the past few years, um, when I was first getting started out uh, about 20, almost 20 years ago, um, I read Michael Abelman's first book, um, and that was basically about small farms all over the world. And he had spent a number of years traveling around the world taking photographs. He kind of came from a photography background and was also farming and had done a little bit. And it wasn't so much profiles of the farms, but it was kind of talking about um, agriculture all over the world, and, and most of that being much smaller scale agriculture. So it was this beautiful photo essay. Um, and that's the book that I think is is most similar in some ways. And he did a follow up book to that, which wasn't about compact farms in in particular, but um, was uh, just about really great farmers all over the country. So I had a little bit of a uh, you know a template starting out from him, and then um, and and some and definitely some inspiration there. Well, I loved the foreword he did for your book. And when I was doing a little research on him, the Sierra Club has a great uh, quote that they shared about. Abelman, and here's what they said. They said, he's a gracious rebel who knows that industrialized farming wrings the life out of both soil and communities. I thought that was a great compliment for him. Yeah, and, and Michael has a, another really fantastic book out that's that's out right now. It just came out last fall called uh, Street Farms, and that's actually about a essentially a compact farm um, that's an urban farm. And and, and he was kind of giving me a hard time for not including it in this book, but uh, but I wanted him to write the forward, and I didn't think I could give him both uh, <laughs> pieces. But uh, but folks should go out and read read that book as well if they're interested, and um, and really inspiring stories out of that one, and kind of the potential for for urban agriculture to both produce food, but also really have a, a really positive impact in the community. That's great. Give us the title again. Uh, I believe that one's called Street Farms. Okay, Street Farms. I'll go ahead and add that into the show notes for this episode. Great. Well, Josh, your book is divided into three parts. The first is titled Why Farm Small, and you share some values and strategies here. I'm curious, what are some of those that stand out in your mind? You know, I think one of the things that's common through the compact farms um is really just that that compact nature um, being limited by space um, forces the farms to concentrate on uh, crops that return a high dollar per space um, and to not compete with the the big uh, agricultural commodities like grains and and um, uh, and even some of the livestock to to some extent. Um, but uh, to really concentrate more on, on uh, higher dollar value crops like um, uh, tomatoes and greens and, and a lot of the vegetables that, that we all love. And then um, I, vegetables is my background, so that was kind of where I was focused in particular. Um, but I also included uh, farms that are doing some, some cut flowers in there as well. And cut flowers are very well suited to, to compact farming. Mm. Um, another another piece that's, that's really common is 
that all the farms are really concentrating, uh, for the most part, on direct marketing. There are a few examples in there who are working with wholesalers, um, but um, trying to get as much of the dollar value from the product that they're producing um, and not going through a bunch of different middle people um, and losing some of that value along the way. Hmm, interesting. You know, I just did an interview with Megan Kane out of Wisconsin. She does the creativevegetablegardener.com. And she was remarking about how she grows so many red peppers. And there was a point during the winter where she was at the grocery store. She very rarely has to buy any vegetables at the grocery store, but she happened to notice the price of green peppers. And then she thought of her own stockpile and just got positively giddy when she realized she had probably hundreds of dollars in green peppers all preserved back at home, you know, when you start thinking about the grocery store prices. Oh, yeah. So it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, and <clears throat> I mean, I, I frequently have this uh, impulse, and actually a, a, we, we gave a, a friend um, a bunch of tomatoes um, years ago, a big flat of tomatoes that were just extras from the farm, and uh, her husband came home and he said, we're rich. And I, I always <laughs> think of that. It's <laughs> true. That, that sentiment, because, you know, to, just to be surrounded uh, you know, even even if it's not the monetary value, I mean, just to be surrounded by such beautiful ve- vegetables, produce, and flowers, and that kind of thing is to really be rich in in, in so many ways. Mm, absolutely. You know, I have to ask as well. So on on page two, right as you start to talk about compact values and strategies, there's an image of someone walking down the row. They're setting bull traps, but I'm curious about the hoop structures that are in the ground? Are these like aluminum hoops that you use to extend the ground? Yeah. yeah. Well, two two things about that photo. So I'll tell you about the hoops first. And then actually there, there's kind of a backstory to that photo, which is, which is interesting. And I'm really glad that the photo made it in for that backstory, um, which many people will probably never, ever hear. Um, but uh, on the hoop question, those are, uh, Half-inch conduit, EMT conduit, which is a thin wall metal that's used for uh, running electrical cables, okay. um, and you can get it in a construction supply place. Um, there's a number of folks that sell bending forms for making hoops like that right now, and, and the form is really very simple. Um, Johnny Selected Seeds has that tool. Um, these are bent a little bit smaller, so these are cut in five-foot sections. It's a 30-inch bed, and I made my own bending form for this just out of some plywood, so that's how those were bent. Hmm. Um, so they just kind of get uh, hand. The, the metal is soft enough that you can bend it by hand pretty easily around a form. Yeah, well, um, they, they look great. They're all so uniform. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> it is a good look. Um the the backstory on that photograph is that um, the the guy who you can't actually see who it is, but the the guy in that photo is uh, Forrest Scott, and his father was the farmer that I apprenticed with uh, about tw- about twenty years ago, and he uh, actually lives in Portland now, and came and worked with me for a season uh, about three four years ago, and so that was just really fantastic to have that that connection um, and uh, really enjoyed being able to, to get to work with him. And, hmm. you know, he, he's, uh, I, I, I don't know if he would appreciate me saying that he reminds me of his father and it was just really fantastic because I had a really wonderful experience with the apprenticeship that I did. Oh, 
So there's a little sentimentality here with this photo. Oh, yeah. 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 Wow. Okay, now I got to ask you one other follow-up question and then we'll move on. But uh, row cover, you've got a lot of different coverings that I see in pictures throughout your book. What's your favorite row cover and where do you source it? <clears throat> well, actually, I just started using a an insect netting last season. And I've been using um, floating row cover for a long time. And we use um, what I think is called uh, Ag-19. It's like half-ounce row cover. Um, I have found that the brand name uh, suppliers do tend to have better quality. I've gotten kind of the discount stuff occasionally and it's fallen apart on me um, and, and been a problem. Um, but, uh, but this insect netting is a little bit different and it was a custom order. I'm not sure where I'll get it again, but if I can find it again, I'm going to look for it. Um, it serves a slightly different purpose, but this insect netting is much heavier duty, um, but it lets through more light. And it's a little bit stiffer, and so it doesn't blow around in the wind, and, and it's really fantastic. I've seen insect nettings in different catalogs. I haven't tried the ones that are coming directly out of the catalogs. Um, the order that I got it on was a, a group order with a bunch of other farms in the area, and I think we actually got it direct from China. I didn't set it up. Hmm. Um but from the factories that that make it there, um, but uh, I, I think that Johnny's sells one, and uh, and there's a number of other uh, suppliers up in Canada uh, that have been selling it for quite a while, and it's really great stuff. Much easier to work with than the row cover. It doesn't provide the same frost protection, but it provides the insect protection, and insect protection is one of the main reasons why we use it. And a little bit of sun cover, right? Um, for us, we actually want to, we want as much light transmission as possible here in the Northwest. We don't get a lot of heat. Um, so as much light transmission as we can get, um, that's more heat to the crop okay. as well as light. Um, so we're not worried about shading at all. Uh, in fact, we want the opposite. And in the winter time, we actually would like as much light as possible because we have very short days and we have uh, a lot of cloud cover. Um, so in our climate, shading is not an issue um, okay. at all. Um, but I know in other climates, actually, things heat up too much under most of the row covers. Um, and there are some reflective ones. I farmed down in California for a little bit, and there was a reflective cover that we would use in the middle of the summer sometimes for some of the more sensitive crops. Hmm. And that actually reflected the heat away from the crop. Hmm. Now, in this picture, is it the insect netting that we're seeing, or is this just regular row cover? Yeah, you're seeing Ag-19. It's a, it, The brand name on that one is probably Agrabond. You can't see it, but it's written right down the middle. Um, okay. So, All right. Well, part one also features a profile of John Jevons and Ecology Action. I'm assuming his work was inspirational to you, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about him. Uh, John Jevons was definitely an early influence for me, and and one of the reasons uh, the profile is in this book is because I really wanted to you know pay tribute to that. Um, Steve Moore, who who wrote the uh, the profile, um, he he actually uh, he works with with John and um, uh, is on the board of Ecology Action, I believe, and he. Um, used to run a farm out in Pennsylvania, and I actually did a third workshop with John Jevons at Steve Moore's farm when he was at this uh, university in, in Pennsylvania um, and working with their farm. Um, so it was really neat to have both of those connections, not just John, but also Steve Moore. Wow. Um, 
highlighted in the book. And uh, Ecology Action started out in Palo Alto, and I kind of got my start in agriculture um, as much as it was in Palo Alto. I was living in Palo Alto and working in uh, nearby Sunnyvale as an engineer, um, but I was volunteering in community gardens. I had my own garden in my backyard, and I got really interested in urban agriculture and read John Jevons' book, How to Grow More Vegetables, got really excited about that, and it just happened that uh, Ecology Action had a garden store there because that's where their project had started back in the 70s, um, and John came and um, did these workshops, um, which were just, I think they were hour-long workshops, but you know, get, to get to meet him and you know see some of his techniques was, was very, definitely a big inspiration. Um, and it, um, ironically, I was interested in it for urban agriculture, but he actually encouraged me to, um, <laughs> to not do it in an urban setting, to move to a rural setting. And I think that was partly because of the experience that he had had in the urban setting. But I, I have more of a, more of a appreciation for that comment. At the time, I thought it was, uh, a little, like he he was writing off the urban areas too easily, yes. um, but there are a lot of complications with urban farming um, that go away when you get into a rural area where farming is really the norm. Mm. Um, and so I think that's more what he was addressing in, in that particular um, uh, comment. Well, the second part of your book is devoted to 15 farm profiles. This is really the meat of your book. And you said in the preface of your book that the best part of writing this book was the opportunity to experience so many wonderful compact farms. You wrote that you found many more than you had time to write about, that the compact farms featured in your book were just the tip of the iceberg. I'm very curious how you found the compact farms across the country that you profile in your book including, you know, there's one in Quebec and there's one in Hawaii. What was your method? How did you find them? And then did you visit all of them? So the the way that I found the farms was, was actually pretty simple. And, and mostly it just had to do with um, having been in the farming community for, um, you know, almost 20 years and uh, and reaching out to people that I knew uh, around the country. I mean, so there probably, I haven't counted, I should count, but I think about half the farms are farms that I actually, um, did visit or had visited in the past, um, and were people that I knew already. Um, and then I was trying to get a little bit broader, uh, cross section. So I reached out to friends all, all across the country and, um, uh, and ask them, you know, do you know of farms that, you know, fit this particular criteria that I was looking for, which was under five acres and, um, you know, kind of making a living from what they were doing and, and doing something interesting. And, um, and that's where the rest of them came from. So, um, recommendations by, you know, basically somebody who I knew who knew, uh, of the farm. And, and I got a lot of really great recommendations from, from those folks and more than I could uh, possibly include. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also a little bit limited, you, you know, some farms that I found that were really fantastic. It was a little bit of a time commitment to say to me, yeah, we'll <clears throat> work with you to, uh, to get all this information. And so, um, there were some farms that I would have loved to have had in the book, but they just were too busy to, to, to make it in. So, oh, sure. I um, see. yeah. Um, and I think if I, I think if I reached out, you know, even a little further, 
um, <clears throat> I could have uh, I could have easily found you know uh, ten times as many examples. I, I was really surprised at how easy it was to find as many as I did. Well, maybe there's a compact farms too in your future. <laughs> Quite possibly. Part of the thing that I love about the book, and you know why I say this is my favorite part, is I just love going and seeing other people's farms, and oh. so. No. Um, and I did not get to go and see everybody's farm in this book. There were a number of farms in the book where it was completely done through telephone and email. Um, but I, I hope that I will get to visit their farms at some point. Um, so I joke about doing the European one because I would, that would give me the excuse to go and uh, visit all these farms in Europe, and, or at least uh, at least have telephone conversations with them across the, the, the sea. Well, Josh, you might need somebody to do some live podcasts from those European farm tours. So let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I could find somebody. <laughs> there you go. We'll make it a multimedia experience. I love it. Well, before we dive into the individual farms that you feature in your book, I have to ask you about your wonderful illustrations, because each profile has an illustrated map of the farm that you're featuring. And part two actually starts out with a wonderful illustration of the entire country showing the locations of the farms that are featured in your book. So who's responsible for these fantastic illustrations? So Story had a, uh, an illustrator that they had worked with in the past, and I actually had no, really no direct contact with the illustrator at all. Um, the way that those illustrations happened was, uh, you know, I kind of had notes on where I thought illustrations uh, would be helpful. And originally, the book was going to have no photos. It was going to only be illustrations. Uh, and the photos were actually a last-minute addition, um, which was which was a little tricky. Um but there there were going to be many more illustrations initially. Um, so um, really the the way that it worked was I, I just uh, you know kind of put those ideas in and then the illustrator would uh, you know, through story publishing would send me back the the um, the sketches um, and then I you know I'd kind of comment on the sketch you know if things needed to be changed or moved around at all um, and then that would go back to the publisher again and. Um, uh, and then they did the, the color illustration. She filled in the color uh, to finish. But so you know, a little little behind the scenes there. It's not quite as exciting as maybe it's not, you know, looks um, to actually deal with that whole thing. But the, the illustrations are beautiful, and, and the and the whole design of the book, the, the book design. I think they did a really fantastic job on. So yeah, I'm, it, I'm happy about that. It's very beautiful. I love this book, and you know. Uh, my feedback to whoever decided to incorporate the pictures is that if you didn't have those actual real life images, I think the illustrations would lose their their special feeling because I think that's what makes them stand out is you have all of these images and your images are beautiful. And then mm-hmm. every time you look at a new farm, then here's this fantastic illustration of the farm. I just thought it was wonderful. And the other thing was these really great, I don't know, I call them Excel charts. They're kind of like this um, table of what's grown in each of these uh, farms. I thought those were great as well. Yeah, I was trying to really, you know, get some common pieces to each one of the profiles so that you, that you could make an easy comparison in some ways and also get ideas. And that, that's actually, so those, uh, I call them matrices, but um, uh, those matrix matrices that uh, are in there that have the basically the harvest seasons for the different products that the, that the farms uh, grow and sell. 
Um, that's something that I've done with my own farm planning for a long time, and that's actually the starting point for when I'm planning out a season. Um, I make one of those matrices, and, and I list out all the products that I'm going to sell, and then I list out when I'm going to try and sell them, and then I work backwards from there to figure out when I need to plant things in order to sell them during that, that time. So mm. um, so that's that's kind of where that idea came from for me. Um, and I was really, really uh, glad that all the farms were willing to share that information because I think it does add a lot to the book. I think it adds a lot. And I also thought for people who were maybe having one foot in the idea of becoming a compact farmer, that it would be a really quick way to ascertain, okay, our first year, what are we going to plant? Because you can just look through these farms and see some very common crops that people like to grow that apparently are lucrative, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't be growing them. And it would give you a good little springboard, a, a place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a very, it is a very easy planning tool. Um, and I definitely do a lot of work with uh, helping farms figure out how to do crop plans and that kind of thing. And that's been a, a particular interest of mine. And so this is one of the, one of the simple tools that I've developed for myself. And I think a lot of other people use that tool. I've come to it independently because it is so simple. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah. Well, you start the profiles part with your own farm, Slow Hand Farm, on 0.15 acres. Is this the smallest farm actually featured in your book? Uh, I think it is. Um, you know, part of the reason that it's this, well, there's two things that probably make it the smallest farm in the book. Uh, one one is um, that it's worked by hand, entirely by hand, and I think it's the only example in the book, with the exception maybe of Brooklyn Grange, um, which is rooftop, and um, uh, that's entirely worked by hand. Um, uh, and the other thing is that um, it's the one example in the book of a part-time farm, so not doing the uh, farming five days a week. Um, and part-time farming is something that I came to um, about eight, nine years ago and have really enjoyed. Um, there was an article where I should say there was a letter to the editor in, in this journal, Growing for Market, which is a fantastic journal if uh, anybody doesn't know it. And you're a market gardener. Um, highly, highly recommend it. So all the all the articles are written by farmers in that in that publication. And um, years ago, they don't do this anymore. But years ago, they used to have letters to the editor, kind of thing. And one of them was a guy saying, "Quit bad mouthing the the part time farmers and thinking that they're not as serious as the full time farmers," which is a sentiment that comes up a lot in. Um, farm circles, you know, where people think, oh, they're not as serious because they're doing it part-time and they have off-farm jobs or that kind of thing. And I realized that I had that same prejudice um, and that kind of stuck in my mind. And I've always been good about setting limits for myself in terms of how many hours of the day I'm going to work on the farm and leaving, intentionally leaving other time to do other things. Um, but back in 2008, I had left full-time farming and I was kind of thinking about the next farm that I was going to start, which was this slowhand farm. And I ended up starting to work for a, a restaurant that had a uh, small farm that they had started, but the person who had started it had left. Um, and uh, they needed somebody to, to take over what had happened, kind of re restart the, the farm program that they had. Um, and it was in the middle of the season, and it was very small. The guy had been working full-time, but I didn't want to work full-time on that because I, I was trying to work on this other farm project. So I started working on that part-time, and I 
hired somebody else to work part-time with me mm-hmm. and that part-time farming just, it was fantastic. Um, there was not the burnout that I had experienced on other farms and, um, people brought, people who were working with me brought a lot of energy from the other things they were, they were doing. So this is the smallest farm because I decided, you know, part-time farming is what I want to do. Um, and of course, when you're not farming as many days a week, you can't farm as much space, uh, using the same techniques. Um, so it ends up being a much smaller example. Hmm. Uh, the, other thing, the other thing I should just note about that is that that farm no longer exists. Um, and I actually work now. So it, it ran for four seasons. Um, the I, I was uh, basically handshake lease on the um, on the land, and the, the owners of the land kind of they were in the middle of developing their own thing at the same time that the farm was growing, and we grew in different directions. Um, and so after four years, we, we parted ways and I rolled that into the farm, um, uh, called our table farm. Um, and they've taken that, that over now. So, and our table isn't in the book. Um, although there are some photos from our table farm in the book, including that one that you were mentioning earlier about the, with the row cover and, and, uh, where my, my friend Forrest Scott was, was working. Hmm. So slow hand farm is no more. Slowhand Farm is the name that I use for consulting and and uh, kind of all the, the farm related projects that I do. Um, but the, as a production farm, it's not really uh, in existence. I grew a little bit of corn and squash on another uh, corn beans and squash on another leased property last year, and I did that under the Slowhand Farm name. Um, I don't know that I'll do that again this year. But so the name continues, but the the, the farm example that's in this book uh, is no more. Hmm. Yeah. Do you think you will farm again? Well, I, actually, I am uh, working in order to keep my hands kind of in production, which is really important to me, and it's very grounding for me to, to get some work out on the farm. Um, I'm actually working with my friend Matt Gordon, who is featured in the book, and his farm is Cully Neighborhood Farm. Hmm. Um, all of these farms <laughs> have evolved since the profiles have been written, and there's kind of a little bit of the evolution up to the time that they were written. Um, but you know, if you check in with any farm a year or two down the road from the last time you talk to them, they're always doing something a little bit different than they did two or three years before. So Matt and I worked together last season for a full season, and then we're going to work together again this, this coming season. So that's still his farm, but it keeps, you know, working with him and, and helping him out on that kind of keeps me in that small farm, uh, world and, and uh, really getting my hands in the dirt and, and um, getting to try out a lot of the techniques that I want to mm-hmm. try out. So it's been a really fantastic partnership. I love that. Well, I love that you addressed uh, part-time work on a farm and also the burnout factor, because whether it's just a small home garden or these bigger operations on compact farms or even a little bit bigger than this definition of a five-acre farm, burnout's a real factor for people. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that a lot of that is people's expectation of how much work it's going to take, and they think that they they just are going to have to work forever, and um, and it's really not physically possible. I mean, some people have, some people are amazing about it, have unlimited amounts of energy, and I, uh, kudos to them, but that's not me. Um, but I think a lot of people, you know, see those examples and think that that's the only way that it can be done. And so I am really happy to 
you know, put out the example and say, look, it doesn't have to be that way. You can decide to do it a different way mm-hmm. and it will still work out. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the successful examples in this book have, have done that. They're still full-time farming, but they've set themselves limits and, and, um, um, and have been good about that. And then there's examples of folks who, who haven't really set themselves limits. And for some people that does work. And I think that that's fine too. Mm-hmm. Well, Compact Farm Number 2 is four-season farm, ran by Elliot Coleman and Barbara Damrosh. These two are modern-day gardening icons. So I'm curious, what are some of the standout features of their nationally recognized two-acre compact farm in rural Harborside, Maine? By the way, they have a beautiful drone flyover that shows footage of their farm on their Facebook page that they took in the fall, of course. Maine in the fall with all the trees around their property is just extraordinary. So I'll have to put a link to that in the Facebook group for the podcast. But that's just, it's really an extraordinary place. It, it is, and and I did. I felt fortunate to to get to go and visit. Um, unfortunately, it was in the winter. Although they they farm year round, and that's the thing that they, you know, if you talk about what's a standout, and Elliot has written a lot about four season farming. That's kind of what he's known for, and so I think that is one of the things that stands out about that example. I mean, the other thing is that that farm, in one form or another, has he's been farming for forty years, uh, forty plus years. Um, and, uh, I think he's always been somebody who's been very, um, intentional about developing systems and, um, systematizing everything that he does and, and, um, and working on, you know, how can we improve this, looking at examples of other farms. And so you can see that having built up over the past 40 years, all of these systems on that farm being very efficient and, you know, really clean, you go there, everything's in, in nice, clean, straight rows. And, you know, it was a place that I'd always wanted to go and visit. And I finally had the uh, uh, the time to do it a couple of winters ago. Um, and so that was a really great uh, treat to be able to go up and, and um, check out their place. Um, I Also, just on a little side note, when I was on that trip, there, that farm is part of, well, originally was part of um, Helen and Scott Nearing's property. And um, if people don't know Helen and Scott Nearing, they they were actually very well known in kind of the homesteading uh, world and, and wrote books themselves. Um, and they sold that piece to Elliot Coleman um, when he was first getting started out. So Elliot was actually kind enough to give me a little tour of Helen and Scott's place because he knew them. And I had read their books and um, was also inspired by them when I was first starting out. So it was really fun to go back and get to see the history of how he got started and kind of who have him talk about who his mentors were. So that was a neat, neat piece of um, going and visiting up there. Yeah, that's great. You kind of get the origin of how he he's developed his systems. And I was laughing as you were saying systems because you can see them in the pictures of this property, just even how he organizes his tools in this one greenhouse. It's amazing. He's extremely organized and it's very clean. Yeah, yeah. And he he's one of those folks that has, or at least from the uh, outside, appears to have unlimited energy. And I think people say that about him. He's, uh, you know, even even now after having farmed for forty years, I don't think, uh, I don't think he has any problems with burnout. He he seems like he's going strong. Man, maybe maybe stronger than ever. I haven't known him for that long. But, mm-hmm. uh, 
definitely has a lot of energy. Is there something that inspired you during that visit that you've brought back and integrated into what you do with farming? Well, his, you know, he, when I was first starting out, his book, New Organic Grower, um, was one of the few books that really was talking about this subject of, of how to make a small farm work um, in a commercial sense. Um, and so he's somebody whose systems I've followed for a long time. So I don't know that going and visiting there, there was any um, particular thing that I picked up on. He actually, I, I mean, you know, if I was going to say one thing, I might say, you know, it's something as simple as there was a particular greenhouse table that he was using in his propagation houses, his greenhouses. It's just a very simple plastic table. And I had seen it on a couple of other farms as well, but I wasn't familiar with it. So, you know, kind of getting, oh, where do you buy these these particular tables? And um, but I haven't followed through on that, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, just real simple little ideas like that, which are, you know, kind of throwaway ideas, but, um, um, but can make a difference. Uh, um, so, uh, and, and the four, se- four season harvest, which I think is one of his more recent books, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of really great growing information in that. So I felt like having his farm, both he and uh, Jam Fortier, who wrote The Market Gardener, those two farms, I kind of put it, I, I wanted to have them in there because I felt like they anchored the profiles in terms of saying, okay, this is what my profile of these already known factors, these farms that are already well written about, look like. And so if you already have read Jam's book and Elliot's books, which you should have, um, you can get a sense of what I'm what's in the profiles and what I'm leaving out um, and, you know, how these other farms relate to those two Mm. farms that have had more written about them. I see. I see. That's great thinking. Now, let me ask you, I I know that uh, when we drop these little nuggets about something like that table, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm going to get a ton of questions from after this episode. So let's talk about yeah. it. I know it's a throwaway, maybe idea, but let's talk about it just a little bit because we may have aroused some curiosity here. Tell us about the tables, how they're used, and then maybe where people could source them. Kind of walk us through that. Uh, the, the, the farm tables are these plastic, uh, table tops that are, uh, they're kind of open. So they, they're a mesh and then they have four round plastic legs that just plug in. So you can break them down and just stack the tops and then stack the legs separately. Um, or then they're just very easy to set up by plugging four legs into them and then they, they stand up that way. Um, and actually, when I looked up, um, I'll have to look up the, and, and get the information. I, I don't remember the manufacturer at this point. Um, but when I looked them up online, they're actually made for displays. Um, so they're display tables. Awesome. Um, but I've seen a number of farms that have used them. And, and uh, they work nicely in a, in a greenhouse propagation setting, I think, because the, the, it is an open mesh top. So they drain well. Mm, I love and then that. being all plastic, they don't rot. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, compact farm number three is Cook's Farm, and it's named after the owner, Stephen Cook. This compact farm is three quarters of an acre in New Lebanon, Ohio, and it's very established since 1985. What are your thoughts on this farm? 
Yeah, so Cook's Garden was one that a, a friend of mine who I've known from quite a while back, um, and I knew he lived in Ohio, and I was kind of looking for farms in the middle of the country. I knew more farms on, on the East Coast and on the West Coast, but I didn't know as many in the middle of the country. And so he told me, oh, you know, there was this farm that I went and visited like 15 years ago, and I was super impressed. I wonder if he's still farming. Um, and then a day later, I got another note from him, and I was like, oh, I found his contact information. Here it is. He is still farming. <laughs> Um, and, um, and I have to say that was one of my favorite farms to, to work with in, in the book. I mean, just really wonderful folks. And, and, um, and he's another one, I, a number of folks in the book told me that they had been inspired by John Jevons early on. So we kind of shared that in common. And I, I thought that was really neat. Um, and he told me that same story that he had been inspired by, uh, John Jevons work. And of course he had, you know, changed all those systems around to make them work. And he had, you know, uh, kept the, the pieces that worked for him and, and, uh, modified some of the other systems. Um, but, uh, he had a, he had a great backstory also, which is that, uh, um, he told me that his father had been a market gardener in England and he had grown up in England. And, um, and then uh, it sounded like maybe he hadn't really considered that as a, uh, uh, a thing to do until reading John's, um, uh, book, but uh, I'm not I'm not sure whether or not that's true or not. That might be spreading rumors. Hmm. Now, I have to ask, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was looking at this farm, first of all, beautiful map, beautiful layout of this farm. And I loved that he uses, I don't know if it's evergreen material or hedgerows or whatnot, but the entire property has this wonderful perimeter, a green, a living perimeter. And then he extends that into the property, and it looks like he has this long secret garden that's kind of right mm-hmm. in the middle. And then he even incorporates it for uh, creating some boundary around his ornamental fish pond. And then in the bee yard, it's also enclosed in some green, like living walls. What do you know about those? You know, so I haven't actually, that's one of the farms that I haven't visited. And I, I am hoping that I get a chance to, to visit because I was so impressed by, by Stephen and, and, uh, and his methods and the pictures that I've seen. He has, um, if you go to uh, his uh, farms, I'm not sure if it's on their website or on their Facebook page. I think it's on their Facebook page. He's been doing, or at least last year or the year before, he did kind of monthly video tours through the farm where he would just, you know, carry a camera around and be like, oh, this is what's happening in this part of the farm, and then kind of walk to the other part. And it's a small enough farm that in the course of five, ten minutes, he could walk through the entire farm and show you all the different pieces of it. Um, so if people are interested, I would recommend going and checking that out. And it is just a really nicely laid out, um, very clean uh, design um, and incorporates all kinds of wonderful, um, you know, it's, in some ways it feels like their house garden, like yes. it's uh, almost, you know, semi-formal um, you know, English garden, which is really fantastic. And he's a beekeeper. So I think, you know, one of the reasons for having a lot of those perennials is probably for the bees. But I think, you know, he's also just, you know, a plant person. He loves yes. being around plants is the impression that I get. And, um, uh, and so, um, he, he sells bedding plants in, in the spring. And then they, when they have extras, it sounds like they just plant those out around the, around the farm where they have, uh, extra spaces and um, you know it's a fantastic uh, use of of uh, whatever materials they have around. 
Well, I love what you said about the house garden and the English influence. I'm sure it's kind of hearkening back to his childhood in England. And there's an adorable picture of him on the bottom of page 61, where he's on his bicycle that he uses for quick trips uh, to the field from the farm stand for custom uh, yeah. harvesting orders. And it's just, it's adorable. And it just, it's a farm that kind of reminds me of my grandparents' farm back in Iowa. It's just got that very cozy, homey feel to it. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it, it, on that bicycle, he's customized it so that it says Cook's Garden on the bicycle itself. Yeah. Oh, get out. Yeah, nice, nice, nice little touches like that. Yeah. Oh. Well, listen, I've spent too much time in front of the computer, and I my vision's going, so I would need glasses. I need the kids to bring my cheaters so I could see that, but I'm glad you shared that nice little detail with me, Josh. Oh, my gosh. Well, and you know, I tell you what, I love my flowers, and so Compact Farm Number 4 caught my attention. In fact, you know when you first get a book, how you just quickly do a flip-through? When I yeah. got your book in the mail, I'm in the car, you know, I've got my book. I quickly start flipping through it and I see this Harvest Moon Flower Farm. And that was one of the first ones that caught my attention because, of course, of all the beautiful flowers. But I loved this this farm, Compact Farm Number 4. And I love the story that you share about the farmer, Linda Chapman, that long before she started the farm, she used to host a large harvest moon party. I really wish I could say that I had attended one of those. And that <laughs> celebration is the origin for the name of her farm, Harvest Moon Flower Farm. So tell us about her specialty cut flower farm. I see uh, when I was looking her up online, when I was doing research for our interview, her flowers are everywhere. They're in wedding pictures. They're in different classes that she puts together. Uh, people were showing off their wreaths that they had made using her flowers and holiday pieces. What can you tell us about Harvest Moon Flower Farm? Well, so there's a there's a podcast that uh, I've been a listener of for a long time called the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and it actually started uh, at about the same time that I was putting together this book. Um, and Linda was interviewed on the podcast uh, early on, and I heard that uh, interview, and I thought, you know, I don't have uh, somebody who's doing flowers. There was actually another flower farm that was going to be part of it, and um, and they ended up not having time. She was uh, in a part of the country. She's in Indiana, so I'm not that far from Ohio, but uh, but I didn't have <clears throat> as many farms in the middle of the country, and so that fit really nicely. And then she'd been doing it for quite a while, and I was looking for more examples of farms that had been around for a long time, so I thought, oh, I really need to contact her and see if she would be interested. She also, in that interview, talked a bit about farm succession, and she's getting towards the end of, uh, you know, to, towards the point where she wants to, possibly retire. Um, And so she talked about, you know, how farm succession might happen. And so I thought, oh, that'd be another really interesting topic to to have incorporated into the book a little bit. And Mm -hmm. and I do talk about that a little bit in the book, but but there's more about that on the the podcast. Um, So anyway, for all those reasons, I really wanted to include her. And and she was generous, very generous with uh, information, generous enough to, to take a lot of time um, to talk with me and kind of go back through um, a lot of the information that she had shared on the Farmer to Farmer podcast, um, and then to include things like this, uh, you know, the matrix that has all the different flower types that she's growing and kind of what the seasons for her on those are. And, and she also does vegetables um, and kind of where those fit in. 
um, to the operation of herbs and vegetables. Um, so it was a lot of fun talking with her. She's she's a wonderful woman. Well, she incorporates the use of a lot of hoop houses on her property. I'm assuming for all these delicate flowers that she has to grow. And the, it's beautiful, right? Because so much of the farm is all about cut flowers. So it was a beautiful, beautiful farm, all the pictures. Yeah, most of the farms in the book, not all of them, but most of them are incorporating a lot of hoop house production because it really does help extend the seasons both. Um, I mean, some folks are using it to go all four seasons. Some are just using it to extend um, in the earlier spring and, and later fall. Um, but uh, that that is another really common uh, practice on a lot of these small farms is to, to use hoop house for that season extension. Um, and also because when you control that climate, you get a much more even uh, year-to-year yield and, and the growing conditions can be controlled more easily. Mm, um, so she's she's definitely one that's done that. Great point. Great point. Well, compact farm number five is the four-acre farm, so one of the bigger ones, in rural Graham, North Carolina, and it's called Peregrine Farm. It's farmed by Alex and Betsy Hitt. The peregrine reference is to the peregrine falcon, which is a symbol of ecological resurrection after coming back from near extinction after regular DDT use prior to 1972. This farm has a lovely blog featuring news from their farm, so they do regular updates. What are some of the things that stand out to you here? I spent a lot of time talking with Alex, and he actually was another one who was on the Farmer to Farmer podcast, although I had um, already gotten his name from a number of other people. Um, but uh, if you want to hear him talking, going back to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, I think is a re- really great place to, to hear some of the the backstory on the, on the farm. And the thing that, uh, a couple of things that struck me, but one is that the farm originally was bigger and then they had scaled back. And that actually was um, the story for a number of farms um, in the book. And then uh, there are some farms that were going the opposite direction where they were continuing to grow a little bit. But a lot of the farms that had been around for longer at some point had been a little bit larger and had decided to, um, to scale back and really concentrate on improving their systems as opposed to just getting bigger. So that was one thing. Um, They had put a lot of uh, attention um, into the business plan and just planning the farm in general, especially early on. And so I really appreciated that attention to planning um, that I was, that I was seeing from that particular uh, example. Um, And uh, folks had just told me that they were fantastic farmers and that they should really be included in the book. So I was I was uh, happy to um, to find out about them and to to get that into the book. It is one of the farms that I wasn't able to visit, but um, I, I you know again hope to be able to visit all of these farms at some point in the future because it was really great getting to see them from afar and, and getting in, into the systems a little bit more. Well, I thought one of the standout images of this farm was on, uh, let's see here, page 83, and it's showing a field of hay grove tunnels, and it says the hay groves are three-season tunnels, so the plastic comes off in the winter, but the scale of these looks very enormous. These are big tunnels. They're big tunnels. I've actually worked with the same tunnel system here in Oregon, and they they really are three-season tunnels. And what that means is that they don't have enough structure to hold up any kind of snow load at all. Um, And actually, I was was in 
these hay grove tunnels uh, here in Oregon, when we first put them up, we had an ice storm before we had taken off the plastic. Oh, no. And uh, I was knocking ice off of them. And the, the not the tunnel that I was in, but the two, they're gutter connected. So they're all connected to each other. Um, and the two that were next to me that I hadn't knocked the ice off of actually came down while that was happening. So that was pretty dramatic. Um, so they're not designed to um, hold any kind of load, but they're relatively inexpensive for the amount of space that they'll cover. Um, and they're pretty easy to put up and take down. And we were using them similarly in terms of trying to keep moisture off of the crop. So it's almost like a big umbrella more than anything else. Oh. Um, and then what they've done is they basically, the legs are not super difficult to take in and out of the ground, um, but they went ahead and just bought extra legs. And so then they move the hoops around from field to field um, and leave the legs in place that's a way for them to do rotations without having to have all tunnels in all of the different places. And the plastic is relatively easy to, to take on and off and it's, it's uh, held on by ropes that are, uh, you can see that in some of the other photos. Well, isn't that clever? Lots of ingenious tips here. Well, Liberty Gardens is the sixth compact farm that you feature, and it's a one and a half acre farm in rural Coopersburg, Pennsylvania, and it's run by Jeff Frank and Kristen Illick. This farm started at the turn of the century back in 2000, and I read that they left jobs in New York City, but after a few years, the land was tugging at their hearts and they wanted to work outdoors more and for themselves. And then Jeff said that a real trigger for him was reading Helen and Scott Nearing's Living the Good Life. He said, I got the impression that if you really put your heart into it, you could do it, making a living off the land. What are the standout features of this farm and and this experience of interacting with Jeff and Kristen? Yeah, it's fun. You know, I, actually, that story that you found, I, I hadn't heard that story. So um, I met I met Jeff um a number of years ago when I was uh, doing a workshop out in, in Pennsylvania and uh, a local extension agent it took me around to a few farms to, to see what was happening out there. And I got to see Liberty Gardens. So, um, and I was really impressed. It was the middle of winter, but they were still doing um, salad greens and microgreens and that kind of thing. And it was a very small operation. This is another one of those farms that had been a little bit bigger and it decided to scale back to really concentrate on what they were doing well. And, um, and I think that, you know, those two things, I mean, just that they were able to do that all through the winter and in that climate and make that successful and that they had been able to scale back their production and actually become more profitable as a result. Um, those are things that I wanted to um, feature in the book and, and make sure that people um, got to see. So um, I think that they do a fantastic job of um uh, figuring out what it is that's working on their farm and then uh, emphasizing that and getting rid of the things that aren't working for them um, and really just concentrating on on what it is that is good. Well, I thought the way that they set up their tables looked fantastic. And then you have this image on page 95 showing the radiant heat tables with the PEX tubing. It's just they do such a wonderful job and the pictures are great. Yeah, yeah. So that bottom heat uh, idea is, is is a pretty common one in um, propagation houses. That's uh, or at least out here, a lot of people are using that bottom heat. It's a relatively efficient way just to heat the soil directly under the plants, and then of course you get a little bit of that heat coming off 
for the plants, but it's really more about how warm the roots are, not the tops of the plant. Um, that affects the, the growth in the, in the off season. So when you can, you know, apply that heat directly where you need it, um, uh, much, much more efficient way of, of doing things. And of course, when you're trying to sell things at a profit, um, the more efficient you can be with things like that, the, the better. Hmm. Well, compact farm number seven translates into the path of life. It's Keala Ola Farm in, oh my goodness, how do you say this? Oh, Keala Kekua. Keala Kekua, Hawaii. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it's 3.8 acres and it's farmed by Barry Levine. Levine, yeah. Okay, Barry Levine. And Barry speaks about soil health and coffee borer treatment regularly, something some of most of us don't have to worry about, coffee borer. But there's this lovely role that Destiny played in this compact farm story. And I was wondering if you would read the story to us. And it's found in the first two paragraphs on page 99. Sure. So before Barry Levine became a farmer, he led bike tours frequently, rolling past miles of small farms and thinking that that's where he should be. In the mid-1990s, he left bike touring to start a small CSA on the edge of Portland, Oregon, with a friend. While visiting family in Hawaii, he looked at a small lettuce farm for sale near Kona. At 1,200 feet on a slope looking out over the ocean, it was a beautiful spot, the perfect setting in some ways. But the place was too expensive and Barry had to pass. He carried a photo of the farm with him for years afterwards. While on another visit to Hawaii, he heard of an older couple looking for a manager for their lettuce farm. It turned out to be the same spot, and in 2004, he took the job, leaving his Oregon CSA to his farming partner at the time. Barry worked as the manager of the lettuce farm for a few years, and then bought out the owners with the help of a new farming partner and took over in full. Having run a sizable CSA in Portland and sold to restaurant, groceries, and wholesale outlets, he liked the simplicity of focusing on one main crop. Simplifying continues to be a major goal for the farm. Available space dictates the size more so than do the markets or Barry's desire to stay small. He makes a living and has time to enjoy island life with his wife and two children. At the beginning of 2015, he bought the farm outright from his farming partner, and is now the full owner. So there you are, the path of life, Keala Ola, and that's how he came to be the owner of this farm. And I thought it was just the a, a divine alignment that that happened. For yeah, him. yeah. So, so Barry, I know Barry from from when he was uh, farming in, in uh, Oregon when um, we overlapped for a couple of years in Portland um, and knew each other from from that, and then. Um, uh, I've been out over the years to visit him on this uh, this lettuce farm that he runs out there, and it's a it's a pretty unique farm. I mean, largely because of the location in the book. Uh, being in Hawaii is a very uh, different climate than, than anywhere else in the, in the U.S., um, and it allows him to do some things that you can't do in other places. And so, one of them is growing lettuce year-round. Um, uh, uh, in multiple crops every year. Um, and, uh, he's up a little bit higher, so it's not super hot. The big, he's on the big island of Hawaii and the big island is amazing because it has all of these different climate zones. Um, so there's places where it's incredibly hot and dry. There's places where it's incredibly rainy. If you go up high enough in elevation, it's actually quite cold. 
Um, and he happens to be in a spot that's just really uh, excellent for growing lettuce. Um, and it's traditionally a coffee growing spot. So the farm originally would have been uh, producing coffee and they still have a coffee plantation on the farm. So the lettuce is the main crop, but then coffee is kind of a secondary crop and they do a few other vegetables as well. One thing I saw a picture of, I'm going to look at the page number here. It's on page 104 that I thought was very ingenious and that people could use basically anywhere is his PVC fencing that he then covers with netting to keep the birds away from his crops. That's pretty ingenious. Yeah, they don't need to use a propagation house. I mean, there's no need for a greenhouse there because basically the weather is like a greenhouse all the time. But they do have a little bit of problem with bird predation. So they just have these very lightweight um, PVC frames that are stretched with bird netting to, to go over top of the of the of uh, all the flats of lettuce. And they do all of their lettuce from transplant, um, and they do a lot of lettuce. So they're seeding a lot of flats of lettuce every week. Wow. Well, I just, I don't have a lot of sympathy for any issues that Barry may have on his farm because every picture <laughs> of the help is all wonderfully tanned, and they're wearing what Minnesotans would consider swimsuit attire. So no sympathy, <laughs> Barry. I don't care what your problems are on your farm, man. That I mean, it just looks like a paradise. So beautiful. It, it really, it really is, and the bananas hanging uh, in the packing sheds of the crew. I mean, yeah, very oh, tropical. <laughs> honestly, oh my goodness. Well, compact farm number eight is, and, and you and I don't speak French, so I know I won't offend you, but please, any French speakers, just you know, give me a lot of grace here because Scandinavian German speaking here. I know I'm going to butcher this, but it's um, Le Jardin. De la Grelinette. It's one and a half acres on Saint Armand, Quebec, Canada, and it's farmed by J.M. Fortier and Maud Helene de Rocher. The word that came to mind for me when I read about this farm was efficiency. They have gorgeous photos on their Facebook page. In fact, when I was researching all of these farms, their photos just absolutely pop. They're very vibrant. What were your impressions of this farm? So JM uh, and JM, I, I apologize for not uh, being able to, to correct on the French here, but uh, JM is somebody who I um, uh, was introduced to a few years ago, before a little bit before his book came out. Uh, he actually contacted me and uh, and sent me a copy of his book, uh, The Market Gardener, and asked me whether or not I would give a little endorsement to the book. And I had never heard of him. And so I read his book, and I was very impressed with the book. And it was interesting to me because uh, at first, my first impression was, this is somebody who just basically copied Elliot Coleman. But then, you know, kind of on closer reading and thinking about it a little bit more, it was like, yeah, he took a lot of ideas from Elliot Coleman's New Organic Grower and Four Season Harvest and those kinds of books but he really applied them. And then this is his story of kind of the systems that he has uh, evolved from those original um, uh, designs that Elliot was talking about and how they're actually working in his area and his climate, which is a little bit different than Elliot's climate. And so I thought it was a really great follow-up, you know, kind of here's the next generation building on what the previous generation um, had out there. Um, and he, again, is a, another guy who's a really great systems thinker in terms of, you know, making sure that everything is done very efficiently and always thinking about, you know, how can we do this better? Um, and then 
he is uh, also somebody who's very passionate about sharing that information and trying to get it out there and um, and being very generous with his time in terms of traveling around and, and providing workshops and that kind of thing. Um, so it was, it was really fun to have him in the book after, um, you know, he, uh, after having him reach out and, and, um, uh, and give me this, um, opportunity to comment on his book before it was even published. Hmm. Is there anything that stands out in terms of a system that he's kind of developed even further, you know, standing on Elliot Coleman's shoulders, if you will? So since Elliot started, Elliot talks about kind of BCS tractor and and using that. And uh, JM has, there's a number of tools that are available that go behind these two wheel tractors now, like the flail mower and the uh, rotary plow and the uh, power harrow. Um, And so he's really developed this uh, uh, wonderful system of bed preparation using those tools in conjunction also with these big uh, silage tarps. Uh, it's very scale appropriate, very light on the soil, um, helps with weed control. Um, and so I think that's, you know, kind of one of the standout things to me. We've been experimenting with those, with those techniques, um, at Cully Neighborhood Farm. Um, and, um, we have some mixed success with the, with the tarps. Um, but I think that it's really a matter of, uh, understanding the system better. It's not necessarily that his, there's a problem with his system. It's that we haven't figured out all the details of it yet. Hmm. Interesting. Well, compact farm number nine is Groundswell Farm, and the image for this farm shows the owner, Zoe Bradbury, and she's standing in the sunlight, and the sun is perfectly hitting her wrists as she's holding these two leaves up into the air, and she's kind of looking at them. Is that like some type of red Char- tail? Charred. Red- oh, charred. Charred. Oh, gosh. Yes. Well, it's charred. gorgeous. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Well, gra- I think she told me that that's actually a still from a film, um, but I'm, I'm not I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's gorgeous. Well, charred in the light is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the reasons why I fell in love with chard because I'd put it on the west side of my house and as the sun was setting, it would hit this chard and it would become absolutely electric. And then all of a sudden I had to have chard everywhere. And then when I was interviewing Megan Kane, she's like, yeah, you know, I'm not as big a fan of chard as I am of kale. And then I'm like, what are you talking about? I couldn't believe it. (laughs) Oh, but honestly, well, it's a beautiful picture of Zoe and yeah. compact farm number nine is Groundswell Farm. And you say there's a double entendre here that Groundswell is used to describe the soil that the farm springs from. And then Groundswell is in the gathering of force and opinion to drive a movement. This is two and a half acres in, oh my goodness, how do you say this? Langlois. Langlois. It's okay. in Langlois, Oregon. It's yeah. in Langlois, Oregon. And it's farmed by Zoe Bradbury. And I listened to a podcast that she was on, and she shared her experience of farming with children, integrating horses into the operation, marketing in a rural environment, and then living off the farm. And the integration of horses, I thought, was a little unique to her farm. Yeah, and and the integration of horses um, actually does push that size uh, envelope that I had been talking about because 
um, the product, the amount of production space that they're using is, is right, uh, is underneath that five acres. But, um, but she actually does have access to quite a bit more space than that, um, for keeping the horses. Um, so it's not all within the five acres. Um, I, I actually, Zoe is somebody who I've known for a long time. is a very good friend of mine. Um, and, uh, we farm together, um, at this farm, Salve Island Organics, uh, here in Oregon, uh, for a number of years. And then, uh, she actually, we were next door neighbors for, for some years, um, before she moved back to Langlois, which is where she grew up and is now farming with, uh, her sister and her mom. And they run, you know, one of the interesting things about this also, so Zoe is farming on a little bit less than five acres. Her sister also has a farming operation, which is separate. Oh. And her mother has a farming operation, which is separate. They're all on the same land and they're all under five acres. Zoe's is actually the largest of the three. Huh. Um, but what they do is they market, uh, collaboratively. So, um, they all sell under one name. So Zoe's, farm name, farm business name is Groundswell Farm, but they but they sell under the name Valley Flora Farm. Um, so it, the public uh, name that they that you find them under is Valley Flora. Um, so Zoe concentrates kind of on the, the largest range of vegetables. Her sister does salad greens, and there's a beautiful picture of uh, Abby out in the field. It um, says Abby's Greens, which is Abby's business, her sister. Um, and then her mom concentrates more on tunnels. And there's a picture of one of uh, Betsy's tunnels um, there in the profile as well. So it's a really neat co- collaboration. You know, kind of it's a family farm, but they each keep their own, you know, individual piece uh, of that. And then, you know, they work together on the things that make sense to work together on. Hmm. Well, and the, the uh, illustration of the farm is interesting because it looks like it's a long, some type of waterway, whether it's a little river or a creek. <laughs> And so it's kind of narrow. I'm imagining it's a little hilly. And then there's this yes, beautiful yes. illustration of her plowing behind this huge, huge horse. I mean, that looks like a Clydesdale to me. It's probably not, but it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big draft horse, I'm sure. But I mean, holy cow, that's unusual, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that that that's uh, I, I, that horse is named Maud, and uh, <laughs> and she's. Uh, probably harrowing in some cover crop seed there. I'm not sure exactly what she's doing, but, um, um, and you can see in that picture that, um, the ground that she's working is, is pretty flat. So where the fields are is this flat right next to Flores Creek. So that, that creek that runs through there is Flores Creek and they get their irrigation water from that creek. But as soon as you go across the road, um, and you can see this in that photo, that it goes straight up into hills, yes. um, and so it's actually quite steep on that on that other side. And the farm is kind of this longer, narrow property that goes down along the along the creek, mm-hmm. um, but it, it part of its a uh, hillside slope. Um, and her mom uh, has sheep that she grazes on that, and then um, and then they farm that bottom piece, which does flood. The, the creek does flood occasionally, and so their their fields do flood and go underwater. Oh, isn't that an interesting challenge? Yeah, and that's not uncommon here in the Northwest. So we have very, very dry summers, so it would never flood during the main season. Um, But we have uh, a lot of rainfall in the winter. So in the wintertime, there's a number of farms uh, all through the Northwest that are on these low plains, which are very fertile soil because it's, you know, right on the riverbanks, but they still do flood in the the wintertime. So that limits your season a little bit. 
Oh, isn't that interesting? Well, compact farm number 10 is Mellowfield's Urban Farm. It's very simply laid out, and mellow in the name refers to the soft, loamy consistency and tender, sweet fruit. And the farmers are Kevin Prather and Jesse Asmussen, and they farm three acres in Lawrence, Kansas, and they've been at it since 2009. Kevin was a former teacher, and on his website he said, teaching and growing aren't all that different. It takes patience, persistence, and a bit of good luck. And they have an adorable picture with their little kid in the hoop house. Yeah. They're sitting yeah. in it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of the farms that I was really happy to, to put in there because I wanted a range. So I didn't want to just have farms that have been doing it for a long period of time. I wanted to have some examples of um, the kind of the next generation of farmers and, and what it was like to start out and what these farms look like in the beginning. There's so many examples out there of once the farm is completely established and all that, and I think that that can be a little overwhelming when folks are just getting started, Mm. and that's not where all of these farms started. So to have some examples of folks who are successful um, but are still in the building phase and, you know, still trying to get things going, um, and so you get a little bit of a picture here with Mellowfields and some of the other farms that haven't been around quite as long of what it's like in those early days. And it was tricky because of course they are growing so much and just in terms of their systems, not necessarily in terms of size, but in terms of their systems and, um, and even their markets and their techniques and all that kind of thing. And the book took two years to put together. So, um, you know, when I would first, I first interviewed them and then kind of write these things up and then, it would be six or eight months later and I'd come back and say, is this accurate? And they'd be like, oh, well, we're doing things differently now. Huh. And so, you know, um, if you were to go and look at uh, any of these farms, you know, two years later, three years later after these profiles are written, they all are a little bit different. But the ones that are the newest farms probably are much different than uh, where they were. So these are really snapshots in time of, you know, what what the farm was like at that particular point. Well, on page 139, there are two really wonderful pictures, I thought. The first was uh, Jesse's planting garlic. And then right below that, they have this just a really beautiful image of the trenches. And, and the view is kind of from the, the length of the trench. And you can see them planting leeks. And it's just really yeah. pretty. It's very striking. Yeah, it's a great way to plant leeks. We do that same, same thing on our farm. Just lay them down in because you can lay them quite close together in the trench and then just fill in the trench. And if you fill it in just a little bit to start, and then over the course of the season continue to fill it in more and more, you get more soil coverage on the shank of the leak, and that gives you more white. Um, and the white is kind of the the prized part of the leak for for cooking. Hmm, I love that. Well, compact farm number 11 is Full Plate Farm. This is the three-acre farm of Danny Persich in Richfield, Washington, and it's also a young farm, started in 2010. And the map of this farm is so orderly. I love how Danny describes it on his website. He says, Full Plate Farm is located on a gentle slope among oaks and firs in Ridgefield, Washington, 18 miles north of Portland. We specialize in growing vegetables for the winter season so you can continue to eat local, nutritious food throughout the year. Check out our field notes if you want to see us in action. Eat well, be well. 
and he has these gorgeous hand-drawn illustrations. He says they're by Lori, last name starts with D, on his website as well. And I have to just kind of give him a little <laughs> shout out here because he has a lot of really wonderful pictures in your book. He's very photogenic. And there's one that's <laughs> there's one that's right on page 14 when you first start the book. He's wearing this spectacular kind of orange jumpsuit and the sun is setting and he's got this gorgeous backdrop. And then there's one at the very end of the book where he's with his family. And both of these pictures are are awesome, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Danny's a good friend of mine. I've known him for a long time. Uh, Kind of got to know him right when he was starting out. We worked together for a couple of seasons. And then he went away and did some other things. And then we worked. He actually worked with me for the first season of Slowhand Farm. Um, and, uh, we kind of partnered on that a little bit for that first season before he went and started full plate farm. And then his, uh, his wife, uh, Michelle is, uh, is a wonderful artist and is very involved in the, um, artist community here in the Portland area. Um, and so a lot of the connections to kind of the artwork, like, uh, Lori D, um, who you mentioned has done these beautiful illustrated farm journals, um, really, really, uh, clever single page, kind of almost like a poster, um, each week. Um, and, uh, so there's a lot of art projects like that that happen around the farm that are just really fun to, hmm. to see and, and that they highlight as part of the work that they do. His farm is also really unique because it's, um, uh, it's just a winter harvest. So he kind of takes the spring off. Um, and then, uh, gets going kind of later spring, plants a bunch of stuff, but he doesn't actually even start harvesting until October. Um, and then he harvests himself through the winter and by the end of March, he's pretty much done. Um, so he's kind of taking April off and, and then, you know, having a slow start in May and, um, it's a, a, a brilliant plan and he kind of came by it by accident almost. Um, but I think it's worked out really nicely for him and, and I'm a little bit jealous because it's a, it's a really neat schedule that he's worked out for himself. Yeah. How great is that? He gets the summers off. Most farmers would just die for that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing I noticed about him is he's a bargain shopper. So he's, he gets a lot of things, <laughs> he gets a lot of things on Craigslist and I'm like, oh my gosh, we could totally chat about our tips on how to source things from Craigslist. But do you know that about him? Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's always been the kind of guy that goes to you know all the the secondhand sales and and uh, he's he's constantly on Craigslist. There's a little little sidebar, uh, uh, some wonderful information that he he uh, gives about how to find stuff on Craigslist. So I thought that was a great little piece I had to include in there. I love it. Yeah. Well. The compact farm number 12 is Flywheel Farm in Woodbury, Vermont, and it's farmed by Justin Coate and Ansel Plug, and it's just two acres. And the name Flywheel Farm came to Justin and Ansel as they were reading about the humus flywheel in an article about soil health. Humus is the well-decomposed organic matter in soil, and it acts as the flywheel by storing nutrients, regulating water through drought and floods, and providing the structure 
structure to soil that keeps it healthy. The expansion of the definition of flywheel to include mechanical and living systems appealed to Justin and Ansel. They liked the idea of looking at their work as a large flywheel, one in which they farm while cultivating the soil, communities, friends, and personal endurance that will get them through the rough seasons. It's another younger compact farm, and it was started just three to four years ago in 2013. Yeah, so, you know, another one of the uh, examples of, you know, what it's like to start out in the beginning and kind of what those systems look like, they're certainly ones that we, I mentioned that the photos were kind of a last-minute addition, and so actually one of the funny things about their profile was that a lot of the photos didn't actually match the descriptions in the profile, and it it was a little bit tricky because they had added pieces of the farm, uh, hoop houses and that kind of thing that weren't there in the profile and we didn't get the pictures until, uh, you know, a year or a year and a half, uh, after, um, the profile had been written. So that was just, you know, another example of how these, you know, all this stuff is very much snapshot in time and, um, uh, and things are constantly changing on all these farms. Hmm. Well, and Ansel's great. She wrote this wonderful little piece on page 160, that talks about why they farm. So kind of an intrinsic motivation piece. I thought that was a nice touch as well. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Well, compact farm number 13 is Annie Hayner's Leapfrog Farm. It's in, oh man, how do you say this, Gwenda? In Gwenda, yeah. Gwenda, well, there Gwenda, you go. California. There you go. On two and a half acres in Gwenda, California, and she grows vegetables, and then she has three acres for fruit trees. Started in 2012, Annie loves the sound of frogs in spring, leapfrogging over friends during transplanting, and leapfrogging over industrial agriculture in terms of what and how they grow, because she concentrates on heirloom varieties and uses organic methods. This farm is just north of Sacramento. She's got some heat and weather challenges to contend with. And I read in an interview that Annie grew up in the Valley, but didn't become interested in farming until she attended college at Humboldt State. Before moving back to the Valley to start her own farm, she interned at a few farms in the area where she learned about growing peaches, tomatoes, and melons. Annie farms only a few acres at her farm Leapfrog, but she's able to grow 18 different heirloom melon varieties in addition to tomatoes, fruit trees, and many other seasonally diversified crops. Annie says that melons are one of her favorite crops. Her all-time favorite is the, is it, do you say peel de sapo? Peel de sapo, yeah. Okay, there you go. Peel de sapo melon. It's a Spanish melon, and it's really ugly. She says she has to convince people to want to buy them because it has a mottled green skin and yellow skin, so toad skin, which is what peel de sapo means. And she also really enjoys Hogan melon. Hogan? Oh, Hogan, yeah. Hogan? Yeah. Hogan mm-hmm. melon, which is an Israeli melon. And I thought... I wonder if she recognizes the uh, a little bit of irony here that her favorite melon is is um, named after a toad and her farm is Leapfrog Farm. <laughs> I, I don't know if she would have made that connection or not. That's an interesting one. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. So she <clears throat> uh, she's somebody who I actually met in Italy of all places. Oh my gosh. Um, so there's an organization called Slow Food which I've been um, part of for a long time. 
um, and they uh, have this really fantastic um, uh, gathering of food producers from all over the world that happens every other year called Caramadre. And so in uh, 2014, I was a delegate um, for my area, and Annie was a delegate for her area, and so we met on a bus in Turin, heading back and forth to this conference. Um, so that was kind of a funny overlap. It turns out that uh, she farms in an area that I'm familiar with because the farmer that I apprenticed with, actually, uh, Andy Scott, who I mentioned before, um, he had originally farmed in that area, and I was farming with him in, in California as well, but in a different part of California. Um, so we got talking, and um, and I just knew that I knew that she had a real small farm there, and um, so I contacted her, and I didn't have anybody in California yet, so I thought that that would be a, a neat example of um, you know just a totally different climate. It's much much hotter and drier there, um, and so um, she's dealing with different conditions there, and she's also in an area where there's a lot of really big farms, so that's a benefit to her in some ways because. Um, there's a lot of experienced farmers and there's a lot of farm equipment that's available to her to borrow. Um, but the markets are also, you know, they're competing in, in some of the same markets. So, you know, how does she navigate that whole thing and, and carve out her own little niche? I thought was a, an interesting story. Hmm. That is interesting. Well, Compact Farm number 14 is your friend Matt Gordon. He's farming the Cully Neighborhood Farm, and it's named for the neighborhood it resides in. It is the the smallest, I guess, after your farm. It's just 0.5 acres in Portland, Oregon. And on the website, Matt wrote that the farm would not exist without the partnership with Trinity Lutheran Church and School. They own the land that they farm, or that he farms. And there are many churches that have farms nowadays. In fact, my own church has a, a huge farm area that people can lease out individual plots throughout the season. And I'm wondering what your thoughts here are on the Cully Neighborhood Farm. Yeah, so, you know, it is kind of a unique situation because um, it's an example of a farm in the book that is in a residential neighborhood. And I think it might be the only example in a residential neighborhood. The the church owns the property, um, but it's actually not very active in, in the farm itself. So the farm is an independent business really just leasing the, the land from the church. And the church also has an elementary school. So the, the original connection was... Uh, that Matt and his friend Michael wanted to start this little urban farm, but they were also interested in um, kind of agricultural education for kids, and the and the church has an elementary school, so they the deal was that they would help develop this uh, garden for the kids um, as part of the lease arrangement. And so one corner of the lot is this kid's garden that the elementary school uses, and they've hired a garden teacher in order to, to work with that, and they kind of coordinate with the farm a little bit and share some resources. Um, and then the rest of the lot is open for doing production um, for the larger community. Um, and uh, so he has done a number of different things over the years. So, again, this is you know one snapshot of one year. Um, over the past couple of years, I've been working with him last year and then this coming year, and we've uh, switched the model. So I think he was full-time in the example um, that I was giving here. He's actually scaled back to doing it just part-time, and I work part-time with him. And then we also work with one or two other people during the, the middle of the summer. Um, 
and then he does some other farm education stuff as the other part time of his um, his work at this point. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the, the church connection, it's just been really fantastic that the church has been so supportive of this community piece. Um, but I wouldn't say that it's necessarily directly connected to um, the church itself. Okay. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, the last farm is Compact Farm number 15. It's Brooklyn Grange. And it's a play on the British word for Grange, meaning a house with farm buildings attached, because Brooklyn Grange is referring to a farm that's attached to a building. In fact, it's attached to a very tall building in Brooklyn, (laughs) New York. And it was started in 2010. It's on two and a half acres. And it's got a nice little quartet of folks that are responsible for it. And I laughed last night because... I wrote the question quartet of folks, and then I was reading what you'd written, and you said the same thing. You said quartet. But the person that you interacted with was uh, Ben Flanner. And the thing that I loved about this farm, and it makes me appreciate what I've got here in my own little suburban yard, is the fact that they need an elevator because this is a rooftop garden. And this place is completely hopping. They have a wonderful video that's on their website, and it's showing this uh, footage, this time-lapse footage of how they transformed the roof of this grange and turned it into this very active farm, complete with an apiary, right? Yeah, it's the buildings are just amazing. I had the opportunity to visit one of the two sites. So one of the sites is in Brooklyn, the other one is in Queens. Um, and I had a chance to visit the one that's at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And, and it's just impressive to be up on a rooftop that's that large and to have it be all green space. And then, to, you know, also have, you know, a little bit of space for chickens and bees and all these other, other pieces. So, um, they've, they've really, um, created something that's very special, I think, for that neighborhood. Um, and, uh, I think it's a great model, um, it's interesting to me that they very much acknowledge that it's not just, I mean, part of what makes it work is not just that they're selling vegetables off of the rooftop, but there's all these other kind of community aspects, community services that they're providing, and those also help make it successful. So, I mean, one of those would be environmental in terms of, uh, uh, like rainwater runoff and, and limiting rainwater runoff and, and those surges, which is a typical use for a green roof. Um, but also it's a, a bit of a, um, uh, a bit of a community gathering space. Um, and so they use it for events and, and, uh, and that sort of thing and, and education. Um, so having folks who live in this very urban environment being able to come up onto that rooftop, uh, kids and that kind of thing to see all these plants growing and to learn how to grow vegetables and that kind of thing. Hmm. Well, and this is, you know, I mean, how many times have you brought up education? I know you just mentioned it with Matt Gordon's Culley Neighborhood Farm as well. But education is a big part of a lot of these compact farms, isn't it? Yeah, and I think to me that's one of the things that is really exciting about compact farms. And, you know, I think it plays a really important role in the community. The compact farm plays a really important role in the community in terms of connecting being an accessible farm, something that uh, is more easily connected with through the community. Um, the big farms, I think, tend to be tend to need to be further out um, and further away from population centers. 
Um, and, um, there's a lot of big machinery and it's just not as welcoming a place. And it's a little bit harder for the larger community to interact with those. And I think it's really important for people to be connected in some way to where their food is coming from and how it's being produced. And I think the compact farm is, um, you know, kind of excels in that area. Hmm, interesting. Well, you end your book with a part that's called Nuts and Bolts, and it's really a how-to guide for folks who are interested in owning and running a compact farm. What are some of your top tips that you find you have to you know, repeat yourself on over and over again when someone approaches you and says, hey, I want to do this, what should I do? What do you commonly tell folks who want to give this thing a go? Yeah, so that section, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't a ton of space in the book. We were limited on the number of pages we had and, and also the number of pages that somebody will read. So there's not a lot of detail on all those things, but I try to outline here are all the different pieces that you need to be thinking about if you're wanting to um, explore a project like this. Um, one of them off the top of my head, which comes up all the time, um, and it's I think one of the first ones that's mentioned is uh, water. And um, and a lot of people come to me and they say, oh, I've got this piece of land and I really want to do something with it. Um, and depending on the area that you live in, and in our area in particular where it's dry all summer long, if you have land, it's uh, it's not going to be productive in the same way if you don't also have a water and enough water to, to irrigate with. So there are ways to farm without water in dry areas, but they take very large pieces of land and they aren't necessarily as economically um, productive. And so water and land are two things that go together. And then I go through a whole series of, you know, okay, so the land is one piece and the water is one piece, but then what are the different uh, considerations with the land and water, and then what are all the different buildings that you'll need and the uh, roadways and, you know, how are you going to transport things around and marketing and, and even get into a little bit of the business piece and, you know, doing budgets and, and planning um, and that kind of thing. Oh, interesting. So you end up talking about irrigation early on then. Yeah, it's a really important piece, um, and it's also irrigation is very closely tied to fertility, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about it in that sense. But basically, the the way that plants get their nutrition is through the water. Um, so it's through the soil as well, but there has to be some water interacting with that in order for that to happen. So, so water is really, really critical, at, um, you know, almost as much so as, as soil, in my opinion. Some people would say it's even more important, which, um, you know, is why hydroponics work, um, and they, they go without soil at all. But I think the soil is really primary, um, but it can't be separated from the water. Can't be separated. Wow. Well, I, you know, I have to ask really quick before I before I ask my closing question to you. There is a, an image in your book that I think is the iconic image of your book, and it's right before the foreword. And it's the image of you packing CSA shares on at mm-hmm. Slohan Farm. And honestly, that was one of the first things I saw that that image led me to your book because I'm like, what is this? And it's gorgeous. You've, you're kind of framed in the opening of the structure that you're in. And then you have this ingenious system for, I guess, lining up your CSA bags. It's on these. Uh, exactly. I mean, yeah. I've never seen anything like this. You've got sawhorses, and then it looks like you've got some two-by-fours that stretch across. And then you use these um, dowels, right, to hold the bags open yeah. while you're packing. Yeah. It's amazing. 
Yeah, so, um, that, you know, and that was just a system that kind of evolved. Uh, we originally were packing shares on the ground <laughs> just for the first oh, wow. couple of weeks. And and uh, I was like, oh, that's not going to work. And then we um, we didn't have access to the barn at that point. And so we, uh, but we were under some trees, like a little apple orchard uh, to get some shade. And then we started hanging these uh, two-by-twos in the apple orchard so we could hang the bags on them. And then eventually um, Danny actually is the one who went out and bought some sawhorses so that we could make it very even and add these other pieces. So, but yeah, that's just a picture of the way that we packed bags. So we would hang the bags from these two by twos and then they're all hanging open and then we would put the mix of vegetables. And so we were packing bags for our CSA members yeah. so that they, we could drop them around town and they huh. could pick them up somewhere more convenient than the farm. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's, and that's a that's a photo that was taken by uh, a woman who's a, a really good friend of mine and is a, a wonderful uh, photographer, uh, Sean Linehan. And uh, a lot of her photos are photos um, that are featured in the book and on the on the cover of the book. Wow! Um, so well, that's uh, my favorite picture in your book. I, I just hands down, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to make sure I I talk well, about it because I just think it's beautiful. It's just gorgeous. Well, I'll have to pass that on to Sean because she, she'd love to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's really neat. The colors are great. Your outfit is completely spot on, Josh. Holy cow! You, <laughs> you look like a you look like a compact farmer there. Totally, the whole yeah, group. I love yeah. it. It's great. It's great. Well, you end your book with this tribute to compact farms, and you quote Masanobu Fukuoka, Fukuoka, who was a farmer and philosopher who was born and raised on the Japanese island of Shikoku. In 1975, he wrote The One Straw Revolution, a best-selling book that described his life's journey, his philosophy and farming techniques. Fukuoka did not plow his fields. He used no agricultural chemicals or prepared fertilizers. He did not flood his rice fields as farmers had done in Asia for centuries. And yet his fields equaled or surpassed the most productive farms in Japan. And here was his quote that you included at the end of your book. The ultimate goal of farming is not the growing of crops, but the cultivation and perfection of human beings. It's a wonderful perspective on farming, and I loved the final paragraph and sentence of your book on page 221, and I thought it would be a great way to close our interview today. So could you read that for us and then share some closing thoughts on your sure. book? Yeah. So my experience with compact farms has been one of hard but rewarding work that feeds the community and contributes to the well-being of the landscape. Maybe it's time for a flood of compact farms growing in this country, carefully cultivating the corners of our communities, planting to the fence rows, but leaving room for wild spaces and creating a culture that works for everyone. Maybe it's time to take a cue from the early CSA movement and to start asking agriculture to benefit the farmers the eaters, and the ecological systems that provide us all with clean soil, air, and water. Maybe it's time to support an agriculture that supports all of us. Love that. You know, the the early CSA movement, I think, I think CSA, community-supported agriculture, um, has become uh, seen as it's grown, it's become seen more as a marketing model, and I think that it really goes beyond just a marketing model. Um, To me, um, that idea of uh, mutual support and the the farmer and the eaters kind of working together in order to benefit each other um, was is really the um, kind of the foundation of that whole thing. And so that was the idea that I you know I was 
um, wanting to express there is that it's not it's not about um, competition; it's about collaboration, um, and that in a very large sense. And I think that that Fukuoka quote also, you know, fits very well with that, where it's like it's it, it's not about growing just growing the food; it's about being better people, living in a in, in a better place. So. Um, yeah, I, and, uh, I, I was really happy because, uh, Danny Persich got the book and he called me up and he said, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, so honored that you put me on the, on the page, my photo of, of, uh, the family on the page with, uh, the Fukuoka quote. And I had nothing to do with that. That was the, that was the folks that laid out the book, but I'm, I'm really glad that he's happy to be on the page with that quote. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was great too. In fact, I thought that was deliberate. So I, I thought, oh my gosh, there's Danny again, kind of start to finish. There he is. <laughs> and it, and then there is his little family, you know, I mean, it's just gorgeous. Oh, and, yeah. and it reminded me of the, um, the other farm where they're in the hoop house with their little, little one too. I mean, just adorable. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, well, I want to make sure that people know how to get a hold of you. Your website is slowhandfarm.com and that will have links to your Facebook and all of your social media. You mentioned you're on Instagram as well. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And that's, and it's all slow hand farm. Yeah. I, I can't thank you enough, Josh, for being on the show. I mean, this was just absolutely, absolutely. spectacular. I can't thank you. Well, thanks you for much. having me on it. Yeah. Great. Right, here we go. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much again, Josh. Okay. Great. Yep. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank Josh Volk of Compact Farms for being my guest. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions, David Myers, my editor, Ein Kadena, my copywriter, and David Gregerson, my project manager. And I want to thank the lovely ladies that make up the listener advisory board for the Still Growing podcast, Beth Engel, Denise Pugh, Amy Fairbanks Von Aachen, Patricia Chandler Newport, Debbie Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery of American Beauty Native Plants. I truly appreciate your input, ladies. And just a reminder, I'll have all of the generous information that Josh shared on the show today over at my website, sixfootmama.com. That's the number six. F-T-M-A-M-A.com. That's my website, and it's the home of the Still Growing Podcast. Next week, I'll be attending the Schoolyard Gardens Conference. I'm actually presenting there, talking about how to get kids engaged in the garden. And I'll be talking with the keynote, Rick Sherman. He's the Farm to School Garden Coordinator for the Oregon Department of Education. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.